Hi, everyone. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to 50. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the Project Director of the Southeast ADA Center. 50 is a special interview series created in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. In our series, we speak with leaders of the disability rights movement who advance the cause of equal rights through their tireless work. We are so happy to welcome today Kathy Martinez. She is the president and CEO of Disability Rights Advocate. Prior to that, she spent six years at SVP, head of disability and accessibility strategy for Wells Fargo. Kathy is joined today by Dr. Peter Blank, professor and chair of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. So, Peter, I'll turn the show over to you. Thank you, Barry. And Kathy, it's such a pleasure to be with you. We go way back, and now we've kind of come full circle, as I'm, I'm going to mention. But I think we first met years ago when you were at WID. Is that right, Kathy? Yes. And, Peter, hello, and hello to the audience. Thanks for having me, Southeast ABA Center, on the show. I was at WID for quite a while, and I think we met at WID numerous times, when, or when I was at WID, numerous times for different projects. Well, Kathy, it's such a pleasure and honor to be with you. You've been uh, an assistant secretary at the Office of Disability Employment Policy. You've been in the private sector. You've been in the nonprofit sector. And now you're at a place which is very central to my formative development. You are the executive director and president CEO of disability rights advocates, perhaps the leading disability rights shop, disability civil rights shop, which I was, I don't know if you know this, Kathy, very fortunate to be one of the founding board members with Larry Paradis and Sid Walensky after they had won a litigation case, which I actually was an expert in involving mental health and ADA accommodations, and then proceeded to form disability rights advocates. And I, if I was going to dedicate my remarks today to anybody, it would be to Larry Paradis, who has left us, but who I had the great privilege, Kathy, with Larry of serving as co-counsel pro bono in Target, NFB, National Federation of the Blind versus Target Stores, which was an amazing case that helped to open up or try to open up the web to persons with disabilities, as well as working with DRA on numerous other matters related to emergency preparedness after Hurricane Sandy and Katrina and a whole host of other important endeavors. But Kathy, today's show and this series is particularly focused on understanding things we haven't heard really about the early days and as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. We've spoken with luminaries like yourself, Lex Frieden, John Wodash, Judy Human. we're going to talk to, and the usual cast of brilliant characters, which I put you in that category. But we're trying to get an understanding of what was different in those days, what people may not know. I know you came on the scene a little bit after some of those folks. And what are your kind of reflections looking back now? on how that disability rights movement came about early on after the act was passed and the regulations were fought over and so forth. 
And what are your recollections of that time that ring true today? So that's kind of a, a broad question, but it's basically trying to understand for our listeners how this disability rights movement has evolved in ways that we haven't heard about before. Well, that is a good question. And I certainly show my age, proud to be among the folks that you've interviewed. It's quite an, an esteemed body of a group of folks. But yes, I did come a tiny bit later. I was at the 504 sit-in. I was outside the building. And that really was my introduction to the disability rights movement. I had not ever thought there was such a thing as disability pride or that I never thought about disability as a civil rights issue at that time. I was 18 years old at the time, so that should give you an idea about how old I am. And I guess the thing that struck me at that time was that, you know, we had so much support from different parts of the universe, you know, as you know, from the unions and LGBTQ groups and Glide Memorial Church and the farm workers and the Association of International Machinists. There was quite an amazing, I would say, nexus of folks coming together to help get us over the finish line regarding Section 504. For us at the time, I remember in the early 80s, you know, we were talking about getting lifts on buses. We're talking about curb ramps. We're talking about basic physical access for people with disabilities. What I remember was the focus primarily was on physical access, which at the time made sense to me, you know, People couldn't get out of their houses and get in their wheelchairs and go through the streets or, you know, get from point A to point B. They couldn't get to work. And at that time, that seemed to be the goal. I remember in the 80s, we would say things like the disability community is the only community that wants to pay taxes. Maybe that was to appeal to the Republicans or I, I don't know. But, you know, the idea was we wanted to participate in all aspects of society. But in my, where I was and how I grew up, being mentored by Ed Roberts and Judy Human and Kitty Cohn, my focus became economic justice and economic empowerment. Because as you know, Peter, I grew up in a large Latino family and I have another blind sister. There were two of us. So we were, the, Peggy and I are the two middle of originally six. My brother just passed recently, so now five. But, you know, there was a lot of things in addition to our disability that I noticed. And one of those was, you know, my mom's inability to get credit, to open a bank account. And so that forced me as a Latina disabled person, you know, into really focusing on economic justice and economic empowerment. I think another thing about those years was developing coalitions. I, it may sound like, like a no-brainer now, but you know, it took some energy. We had the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. It was started, I think, in like the late 70s, early 80s. I don't remember the exact date. But I remember meeting Frank Bowe, who was a deaf leader in our community. And, you know, he and another person, Eunice Fiorito, who was blind, you know, really played, and Judy, really played a big role in bringing the disparate disability groups together. Because we had, up until then, worked on our own. The blind groups, of course, you know, being the first to organize, because in my opinion, we were able to organize a lot easier than other disability groups, because A, we could get up the steps, unlike our comrades who are wheelchair users, 
and we could speak the language of the dominant culture, unlike our comrades who are deaf collaborators. So, you know, the blind, um, and I will say, you know, were organized quite a ways before then. They began to organize in the 30s, as, as you know. And, you know, there were issues about would it dilute the path that the blind organizations were on? Like, you know, I remember conversations, you know, if we participated in coalitions, would that take away something? Well, it turns out to not have taken away. It turns out to have added a great deal to our right, to our ability to integrate into society when we coalesce. So for me, that was something that people don't talk about because coalitions are kind of, like I said, they're no-brainers now. Another thing that I, I noticed is there were very few people of color in the disability rights leadership at the time. And the values, you know, of the movement were really based on white middle class values. That is changing now. But I, you know, as somebody who came in from a different culture, I noticed that. And for a while there, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there were very few of us people of color in the leadership of the disability community. Kathy, you know, you, of course, as usual, read my mind. Today, we talk appropriately a lot about racial justice and intersectionality, people with multiple additive and combining personal identities. And I was going to ask you about, as a Latina young woman, Hispanic woman, person of color, or people like Gerald, Gerald Baptiste, and how did color play into those early days? Was it something you viewed as distinct? as part of your identity, or did you identify as a, a young Hispanic woman who happened to be blind? That's a really good question. And thank you for mentioning Gerald Baptiste. He certainly does not get enough recognition. Gerald was a mentor of mine. Gerald was an African-American man who entered the disability rights movement in middle age, became, I guess, low vision. So I think, you know, in those days, I focused primarily on our rights but I was also very involved in the Latinx or Latino movement, depending on your generation. I was also very involved in Latino politics. But there was, you know, there were times when I would go to, you know, meetings about Latino specific issues. And, you know, of course, there was no accessible information. You know, there were times when I would go to, you know, a disability rights leadership meeting and you know, felt out of place. I would say the, the mentors that I had were very conscious of my intersectionality, Kitty Cohn and, of course, Gerald as an African-American man. And so we were able to discuss it. And I was encouraged not to check any of those identities at the door. So I felt very lucky. I mean, there were definitely some lonely times when I wish there was other people of color who were part of the disability rights leadership movement. But I was encouraged by people who were Caucasian, by people of all races and genders, to not check any of my identities at the door. So I feel very lucky. Would you say that the disability civil rights movement itself at that time, though, was very much influenced by the African-American civil rights movement? Uh, women, Title IX had preceded it. And then, of course, in the 80s, we had the AIDS epidemic where LGBTQ rights came to the fore. And as a matter of fact, many leaders from that community participated in development and first cases under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The first case under the ADA involved uh, HIV disease. Well, I would say that a lot of the tactics that we adopted 
came from those movements. I refer to the disability rights movement as a, a car on the train of civil rights. So we were, you know, one of the cars. We definitely adopted a lot of the tactics of those movements. But up until I would say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we did not consciously acknowledge that the experience of people who are disabled of color might be different and, and there might be different value systems. Um, it's definitely changing and for the good. I had experiences where I would talk to my Latino brothers and sisters. As you know, Peter, I ran a project called Proyecto Vision, which was designed to help Latinos with disabilities get work and, and get into the job market. And when I approached um, people like the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and other Latino groups, they were very reticent to collaborate. That did change. I want to, just for the record, be very clear that changed. Why do you think that was initially? Well, you know, people have their own interests at heart. One of the things that I think the disability community has has been getting better at, and we could still be better at, is, you know, working across the social justice aisle, so to speak. We know that there is a higher incidence of disability in Latinx and African American, Native American communities. And so I think it's really important to say, hey, our issues are your issues and your issues are our issues. And at the time, this was 20 years ago, well, I will, this is my opinion, and so I'm not going to speak for them, but in every culture, there's so much shame associated with disability. And I think that until people are, you know, are around folks with disabilities and really see that we are multidimensional and we are, you know, not kind of a one-note samba, that we have more in common than we have differences. Of course, we have differences, and those differences need to be celebrated. But when I was trying to, and it wasn't just me, you know, there was a bunch of us trying to say, hey, we are your brothers and sisters, and we would like to have you as part of our movement, and we would like to be part of your movement. You know, some of the responses I got were, gosh, if I had somebody with a disability, you know, it, it might hurt my business because people would feel, it would make people feel bad. But we worked, you know, we kind of chipped away at those negative attitudes and, and myths and stereotype. And we chipped away at the fear. And I'm not saying, you know, that it was perfect, but we did get some part, you know, some chapters of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to hire folks with disabilities, you know, whether they were Latino or not. And it, it did move the needle. And so really just, you know, being a part of each other's lives is the key to reducing fear, myth, and stereotypes. You now have become the CEO and president of Disability Rights Advocates, which is a premier litigation shop in disability civil rights. Why did you decide at this time, with all the experience you had, to go back into the fire pit from government and nonprofits and so forth, really to the forefront of developing law and change with this organization? And the second part of the question is, What's different about today that's unique when you think about COVID, economic justice, racial justice, war, polarization of parties, political parties? Where is the disability rights movement falling out today in this context? Answer to the first part of your question is, I am one of the people who have benefited significantly from the legal work of disability rights advocates. You mentioned the Target case. 
I have seen their work, you know, expand the horizons for people with disabilities for the last 30 years. I am a non-lawyer, I shall have to confess, but I'm also very interested in the law and how, you know, litigation has changed the landscape and the attitudes, the physical and, I guess, cultural landscape for people with disabilities. So, you know, it's a job that I wanted to learn more about, you know, what this type of work entails. I do believe, frankly, that a lawyer with a disability should run this place. So, you know, at some point I'll move on to a new adventure, but not yet. So I just, I love the work. I think there's great people. There's great minds. I knew I could learn. You know, I feel like I've given back a lot. We've got a strategic plan. We've made some major strides in developing systems regarding, you know, how to get things done. So I feel like I've been able to contribute, but I've learned a heck of a lot from these brilliant legal minds. In terms of disability rights, as you know, I'm sure you've had plenty of folks on your podcast talking about the fact that we're very likely moving from disability rights to disability justice, where we look, you know, at the intersectionality of of the whole person. I think we're in a very complicated time as all times are, but given that our political parties are so far apart, I think it could have a real negative impact on disability rights. Disability is an across-the-aisle issue. You know, you don't have to be a Democrat to become disabled or a Republican to become disabled. So I am hoping that on this issue, the two parties can continue to work together I know that it is happening to a certain extent now. And I think COVID has impacted. There's a lot of things that are impacting the disability rights movement, you know, including the fact that baby boomers like you and me, Peter, are turning 65 at 10,000 persons a day. This is a different generation that won't wait a year for an accommodation to materialize. You know, these are folks, our generation wants things instantly, and that includes people who acquire disabilities because of aging. You mentioned COVID. We have millions of long haulers, unquote, that are living with disabilities that they never expected to have. So how are we going to you know, include them? How are we going to open the tent and widen the cast a broader net? I also think that one important part of the movement that is is changing and growing is the acknowledgement that non-evident disabilities are just as real as evident disabilities, including mental disabilities, including neurodiversity. And I really believe, and I have had the experience, that acknowledgement and work, working you know, with the impact of these types of disabilities makes for a better society, makes for a more understanding workplace and marketplace. So I do believe that our movement is changing. We are definitely not the same movement we were even 10 years ago. And we're much more inclusive. And we're acknowledging that disability isn't just about braille and wheelchair ramps, but it's much more nuanced. You know, I think that part is fabulous. I hope our two-party system will hold up and that disability will be something that people can come together on. Well, I know, Kathy, you're not a prophet, although you may be to me and others. What do you see the next five to 10 years? Or is it just, is that a silly question? Because the dynamics have changed so much and there's so much uncertainty. At least, what do you hope are the priorities and aspirations and, and potential advances over the foreseeable future? Well, 
one of the things I would, I'm hoping for is that social justice movements will continue to work together in a stronger way and really understand, develop understanding of each other's issues. Um, I believe that COVID has turned, you know, our workplaces upside down, which is really good. I mean, you've heard a thousand times that the silver lining of COVID was the fact that people can work remotely. I think we're just at the beginning of this concept of how we work. And especially now that companies are hiring people who are neurodiverse, now that folks are acknowledging uh, their mental disabilities and, you know, forcing society to figure out how to accommodate somebody with a mental disability. I think just acknowledging non-evident disabilities, they're just as real, although I think the discrimination is very different, but they're just as real as somebody with evident disabilities. And we we have an aging population that, you know, that is going to be with us for a while who are acquiring disabilities. So disability is a big part of who we are becoming. So Kathy, we also live in an unprecedented environment where Supreme Court decisions are leaked, Roe versus Wade, and where a conservative court may not be as receptive to disability rights, arguably, as was in the past, although some might say the court has never been that receptive to disability rights, uh, bar uh, Olmstead, perhaps, and a few other cases. But this past week or so, we've had a case come down under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, Cummings, which basically limited or prevented emotional pain and suffering damages under the 504 Rehabilitation Act. We have a leaked Roe versus Wade case, which puts in stark light the court's view of civil rights, perhaps, or human rights with regard to the extent to which they are recognized under the United States Constitution. What's your sense of, of how disability civil rights may fare in light of Cummings, in light of Roe versus Wade and its approach to rights generally. Are you fearful or, or uh, worried about the nature of the types of cases that may be brought in light of these in the disability area? So yes, to me, it's, it's terrifying to see a woman's right to choose get revoked. That to me is the scary part of all this because choice is at the foundation of our constitution to a a major extent. I would say that the disability rights community will have to start working more closely with their state legislatures and really, you know, see who's on their school board, see who's on their city councils, see who's running for state assembly and and Senate. And I think we're going to have to focus much more in that space. Well, Kathy, I think that's very insightful. It really brings into question issues of federalism and state rights, which have long been at the heart of our democracy, beginning with questions of race. And it would be a shame to move backwards on those dimensions with regard to human and civil rights. So I think you are right. A new focus, perhaps, for the next generation will have to be a return to the state level and to really galvanize the political power of the disability rights movement. Barry, back to you and thanks again, Kathy. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter.
Listeners, our guest for this episode today has been Kathy Martinez, President and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates, the country's leading national nonprofit disability rights legal center. She was joined today by our host, Dr. Peter Blank. Listeners can access this interview and other interviews at the Section 504 at 50 website. The web address is section50450.org. The series is produced by the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and is a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Again, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you at our next interview.